Worship Podcast for Grace Episcopal Church in Newton, Massachusetts for September 20th, 2020. I'm Regina Walton, pastor and rector of Grace Church. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome in our community. Last week, I asked everyone to please sign our petition at gracenewtontower.org. I believe we've crossed the 500 signature mark, which is great. Thank you, everybody. Though the Community Preservation Committee in Newton heard our presentation on Tuesday, they have delayed the vote on our application until next month. You'll hear more soon about how to continue to support this effort. Talking with city officials about our project was an interesting experience. It's a lot easier to think about the utility or public good of something like a ball field or a bike lane than it is to think about the utility or public good of a tower. What does a bell tower do, anyway? What is its public good? A bell tower is an external architectural feature that evokes transcendence. That's what it does. In a way, it's sort of like a lighthouse. Archaic, really tall, pointing beyond itself, beautiful to the eyes, and when the bells ring, to the ears. It reminds you that you are part of something larger than yourself, part of history, part of the continuing unfolding mystery of the created world. It does all this by making you look up. A simple technology, really. Stone on stone on stone, pointing to the sky, housing the chimes that ring out. It's difficult to talk about transcendence and beauty in a public hearing. But where would we be without these things that stop us in our tracks and get us to look up and call us out of ourselves and beyond ourselves to what is grand and mysterious and beautiful in life. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
and blessed be God's kingdom, now and forever. Amen. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Grant us, Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly, and even now, while we are placed among things that are passing away, to hold fast to those that shall endure. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. A reading from Jonah. Chapter 3, verse 10, to chapter 4, verse 11. When God saw what the people of Nineveh did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live." And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush 
and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, Yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, You are concerned about the bush, for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than a 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. Thanks be to God. Your kingdom, O Lord, is an everlasting kingdom. I will exalt you, O God, my King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. There is no end to his greatness. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your power. I will ponder the glorious splendor of your majesty, and all your marvelous works. They shall speak of the might of your wondrous acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall publish the remembrance of your great goodness. They shall sing of your righteous deeds. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion slow to anger and of great kindness. Your kingdom, O Lord, is an everlasting kingdom. A reading from the letter of Paul to the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 21 through 30. To me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which I prefer. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in faith, so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, 
so that whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation. And this is God's doing, for he has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well. Since you are having the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. Thanks be to God. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew, chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, He saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, 
they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to, gi- I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. There's a popular pregnancy and childbirth book that's been revised and reprinted many times called What to Expect When You're Expecting. The cover used to have this line drawing of a pregnant woman in an old-fashioned dress, sitting in a rocking chair and reading a book with a cup of tea next to her, with a totally serene look on her face as she read. Of course, this book is full of the details of all the bizarre, uncomfortable, and disturbing things that happen or could happen during pregnancy and birth, so I always wondered why the lady on the cover looked so calm. These days, I feel like we all need a manual called something like, What to Expect When All Your Expectations Have Been Undermined by a Global Pandemic. At least with all the ups and downs of pregnancy, there is a clear beginning, middle, and end. And there is some kind of roadmap for how to prepare. Not so with the pandemic. Our Old Testament and Gospel lesson for today are about expectations not being met. Even though the ancients lived in a far more tumultuous and unpredictable world than we do, they shared with us an extreme dislike of thwarted expectations. What makes each of these stories interesting is how the characters involved react so negatively, not to an act of misfortune, but to fortune, not to maleficence, but beneficence. The expectation was that another group of people would get what they deserve. But God's mercy and generosity upsets the expectation of wrath or of a lesser wage, and this causes real consternation. This gospel is the first of something like four weeks of parables of Jesus set in a vineyard. So stay tuned for more vineyard parables. Jesus says up front that this story tells us something about what the kingdom of heaven is like. This story about a landowner who hires day laborers first thing in the morning. With these, he clearly contracts for the usual daily wage before they get to work. Then throughout the day, the landowner goes back into town and hires more field hands. But this time, he's a little vague about what they'll get. I will pay you whatever is right, he says. At the end of the day, the early bird workers get exactly what they were promised by the landowner. But so do the workers who worked for only half the day or for only one hour. They all get the same wage. And this is really annoying to the first workers. It violates their idea of fairness. 
When they saw the last on the scene getting the full daily wage, they were certain that they were about to get a raise beyond what they had contracted. But they don't. When they grumble about this, the landowner responds that he kept the bargain he made with them. It's his money, and he can do what he likes with it. And he questions them, saying, Are you envious because I am generous? The first workers expected that there would be some sort of hierarchy among the workers, according to time served. But that is not the case. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Parables are mysterious, and their interpretation tends to keep us guessing, which is why we're still engaged with these stories of Jesus 2,000 years later. The parable points out the human quality of always wanting to include a greater-than or less-than sign in every social interaction. We want to know the pecking order, the standing in every situation. Jesus makes plain that this is how humans work, but not how God works. He tells a number of other stories where the expected hierarchy of value and importance is undermined. The story of the prodigal son, the saying about where to sit if you are invited to a big banquet, hint, not at the head of the table. He answers the disciples who want to know who will sit at his right hand and his left in heaven that they don't really know what they're asking. He tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the ultimate last will be first scenario. Over and over, Jesus says, don't be so sure about who is at the head of the line in the kingdom of heaven. Don't be so sure of your own VIP status. And he is speaking especially to religious people, to people like us. This Hebrew scriptures lesson is the final episode from the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah makes a lot more sense if you understand that it is a satire. This prophetic book is written for an audience that knows how a prophet is supposed to behave, and it upends every single convention of that. Jonah, the whole way through, is the worst prophet ever. God calls him, and he runs away and goes to sea. He gets on a boat going in the other direction from Nineveh, but as the saying goes, he can run, but he can't hide. When the sailors realize that his disobedience is the cause of the terrible storm they're in, they throw him overboard, where he's swallowed by a great fish. Spat up on the beach three days later, looking like a ghost, he decides perhaps it's time to get on board with God's plan after all. When he finally arrives in Nineveh and preaches his message of repentance or destruction, every single person repents right away. Even the farm animals are in sackcloth and ashes. This is another aspect of the satire. In real life, no one ever listens to prophets. Our reading begins when Jonah realizes that God isn't going to destroy the city after all. He's going to forgive them. I knew it, Jonah says. I knew you wouldn't destroy them. Now I look like an idiot. And so he stomps out of the city to sulk and sit back and see what will happen. And then we get one of the funniest and most marvelous passages in the whole Bible. Jonah is sitting in his sulk, trying to stay out of the sun. And so God appointed a bush, a gourd vine actually, to suddenly sprout up and shade him. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But the next day, God appointed a worm, 
one of my favorite Bible verses, to eat the vine so that it withers. Jonah is angry and petulant enough to want to die over this lack of shade. Now, I'm married to a redhead, so I have come to understand that for some, shade is a very essential and even non-negotiable commodity. But this is still taking it a bit far. The book ends with God's question hanging in the air. If you care so much about the gourd vine, shouldn't I care about a whole city full of people and animals? Jonah's expectations, the vineyard workers' expectations of just desserts, have not been met. God is revealed as not playing by the earthly rules of some people are worth more than others and some people deserve what's coming to them. If we expect God to play favorites, we will be disappointed. But back to our book, What to Expect When a Global Pandemic Undermines All Your Expectations. It would be great if the big issue in this moment was that others were getting better than they deserve and that a wildly beneficent force was moving through the world, averting disaster and miraculously increasing people's paychecks beyond what they expected. That does not seem to be the world we are living in right now. In fact, just the opposite. So how do we manage the roller coaster of emotion that comes with so many interrelated crises unfolding at once, with so many changes to our patterns and routines, so many ways in which we are asked to reinvent and reimagine what we do? Most of us are going to school, not at school, going to work, not at work, going to church, not at church. How do we keep our balance when everything has shifted, when so much uncertainty lies ahead, when we are simultaneously so constrained and so stretched? There is actually a principle, a spiritual value, that addresses the situation that we're in, trying to keep our balance when everything is out of balance, trying to regain some sense of equilibrium emotionally when we know it's a marathon, not a sprint, but we didn't sign ourselves up for a marathon this year. This spiritual value is called equanimity. It has a lovely Latin origin, equus meaning equal, and animus or anima meaning mind, equal-minded. Equanimity is the ability to absorb whatever comes our way without being thrown off balance, without becoming overly reactive. Last week I talked a bit about this pause between stimulus and response. Equanimity is the quality that helps us to see that there is in fact a pause hidden in there and that we have a choice about what our reaction will be. The Franciscan teacher Richard Rohr says, Equanimity is the very nature of the soul. Jesus called it the peace the world cannot give nor take away. Equanimity is not about insulating ourselves from our feelings or sublimating feelings like anger. It's about living in harmony with our emotions and not letting our emotions drive the bus. It's about allowing Christ to build a foundation of peace within our hearts so that we can respond to whatever comes our way from a place of peace. The writers of the New Testament and of the texts of the early church did not use the word equanimity, 
but they had three concepts that summed up this foundation. The first was this idea of the peace of Christ. Peace I leave you, my own peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives, Jesus says in the Gospel of John. This is why we greet each other with what the early church called the kiss of peace when we, make, when we meet together for worship. The kiss was the handshake of the ancient world, as it still is in some cultures. Greeting each other with the peace of Christ is the Christian version of namaste in yoga. It's foundational. It is what we each carry within us by virtue of our baptism. The peace of Christ in me greets the peace of Christ in you. May you always carry it with you. The Apostle Paul talked a lot about the peace of Christ, perhaps because he had an especially tumultuous life. Trouble followed Paul wherever he went. He was always being challenged and insulted, beaten and flogged, arrested and thrown in prison, threatened with stonings, shipwrecked, and needing to leave town in a hurry. So when he writes to the Philippians, only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He is assuming that it is not going to be smooth sailing for them and that they should be prepared. Actually, the whole letter to the Philippians is a mini textbook on equanimity. It's only four chapters long, so it's worth reading the whole thing. Paul writes in Philippians 4.10, For I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul's foundation is the peace of Christ, which the world cannot take away, and it empowered him to do the remarkable ministry that he did. One misunderstanding of equanimity is that this emotional control and balance will lead to complacency, to indifference, or to inaction. Paul was a passionate person, but it is clear that his foundation of peace, his equanimity rooted in Jesus, was the secret to all he was able to accomplish. The writers of the early church distinguished between what they called apatheia and acedia. Apatheia in the ancient world was not apathy. It was standing apart from your emotions so that you could choose how to respond. Apatheia was related to the virtue of purity of heart, as in, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Apatheia was the dispassionate ability to detach from harmful emotions and reactions in order to act rightly, while acedia was the condition of being overwhelmed, fatigued, or numb, unable to really feel or to act. Teach us to care and not to care the poet T.S. Eliot wrote. Equanimity is knowing what to care about and what to let go of so that we can stay balanced and healthy under stress. There's quite a bit of teaching on equanimity in Buddhism, where it is one of what's called the Four Noble Abodes. In fact, it's the foundation of the other three abodes, like houses of virtue. The other three abodes loving-kindness, compassion, and unselfish joy all depend on equanimity. I like thinking of these virtues as abodes or dwellings 
that we can take shelter in. Maybe that is how we should think of the peace of Christ as well, as an abode, a house or a cottage or a tent that can shelter us from the storms raging outside. The prophet Jonah is a good example of what happens when you don't take shelter in the four noble abodes. Jonah wasn't a great prophet, and he would have been a pretty lousy Buddhist too. The poor citizens of Nineveh did not experience much equanimity, loving kindness, compassion, or unselfish joy from him, even after they repented. So how do we build up our own abode of equanimity during this endless year of our Lord 2020? How can we experience more of the peace that passes understanding, the peace of Christ, in our daily lives? First, in the midst of so much uncertainty and disruption, we need to make sure that our habits and practices are serving us well. Create a few very simple spiritual anchors for your day and cling to them. Maybe you have some already. This might be five or ten minutes of quiet prayer or spiritual reading before your workday begins or during a break for lunch or coffee. It might be a daily walk or run or some time outside that gives you a break and some time to think. It might be a discipline around not getting sucked down certain news rabbit holes. It might be subscribing to a daily email like Richard Rohr's or the SSJ Brothers so that you know you have at least up one uplifting and edifying thing in your inbox each day. It might be mindfulness around alcohol consumption or other things you reach for when you are stressed and planning out in advance what to reach for instead. It might be remembering to call that friend who always has so much more equanimity and loving kindness than most others do. One equanimity anchor for me is reading biographies of people I admire. This reminds me of all the crises of the past that my personal heroes have had to make it through. Reading about the lives of the saints, secular or sacred, broadens my perspective and helps me to hang on to hope for our own time as well. So even though we're not going to get our What to Expect in a Global Pandemic manual, we can begin to write our own guidebook. We know what to expect as a follower of Jesus. We can expect that, no matter what happens, the peace of Christ will dwell within us and empower us to respond to the challenges we face. We can expect that God's mercy will be wild and unpredictable. We can expect the Holy Spirit to guide us over the rough spots. And so I say to you, friends, the peace of Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen. Let us affirm our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. 
He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We join with other churches around the world in observing these next Sundays as part of the season of creation. Let us pray for the revealing of the reign of God in the world, now and always. Creator of earth, sea, and sky, kindle the fire of your Spirit within us, that we may be bold to heal and defend the earth, and pour your blessings upon all who work for the good of the planet. God, giver of life, hear our prayer. Breath of life, Receive our thanks for the beauty of our local habitat and all who dwell in it, and grant us the wisdom and will to conserve it. God, giver of life, hear our prayer. Source of life, heal and redeem the wounds of your creation, and visit the places and people who suffer from our indifference, neglect, and greed. God, giver of life, hear our prayer. Lover of all you have made, we thank you for the wondrous diversity of your creatures, and we pray for their well-being. God, giver of life, hear our prayer. Author of the Book of Nature, receive our gratitude for places of restoration and healing and continue to bless those places that feed our lives and spirits. God, giver of life, hear our prayer. Wise creator, whose works are full of mystery, give us wonder and appreciation for your creatures with whom we find ourselves in conflict. God, giver of life, hear our prayer. Divine Physician, heal our communities, especially those where neglect, greed, or violence inflict suffering upon people, other creatures, and the land. We pray especially for all those suffering from COVID-19, and for all doctors, nurses, and health professionals who care for them. We pray for medical researchers and those working toward a vaccine. We give thanks for those who have offered themselves as participants in vaccine trials. We pray for all creatures, two-legged and four-legged, affected by the wildfires in the West, and for those who are risking their lives to save others. God, giver of life, hear our prayer. Comforter of all the earth, Sustain the people of this congregation who desire or need your presence and help. We pray for all students in K-12, college, and graduate school, and for all teachers, professors, and school administrators. We pray for those who are grieving and those struggling with anxiety, depression, or addiction we pray for those who are lonely and isolated. God, giver of life, hear our prayer. 
giver of all good gifts, awaken us daily to our dependence upon your bounty, and make us always thankful for the abundance of your blessings. We pray for all those who are blessed with a birthday this week, Brian, Nancy, Tommy, Meredith, Carol Robinson, Dan, Peter, William, and Bessie. We pray for all who worship and minister at Grace Church, giving thanks especially for the Gardeners of Grace, who tend to the Coleman Memorial Garden and grounds with love and care in all seasons. God, giver of life, hear our prayer. Rock and refuge of all your creatures, receive into everlasting mercy all those who have died, especially Mary Townsend. God, giver of life, hear our prayer. Eternal God, the light of all who know you, come and fill our hearts with your love. Help us speak when many keep silent. Help us stand for what is right when many sit in indifference. Increase our faith and charity until your kingdom comes and heaven and earth rejoice in everlasting glory. Through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us confess our sins against God and our neighbor. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, have mercy on you, forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen you in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. Amen. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. A prayer for the power of the Spirit among the people of God. God of all power and love, we give thanks for your unfailing presence and the hope you provide in times of uncertainty and loss. Send your Holy Spirit to enkindle in us your holy fire. Revive us to live as Christ's body in the world, a people who pray, worship, learn, break bread, share life, heal neighbors, bear good news, seek justice, rest and grow in the Spirit. Wherever and however we gather, Unite us in common prayer and send us in common mission that we and the whole creation might be restored and renewed through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Amen. The peace of God that passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you to everyone who contributed to our worship podcast for today. We thank the Grace Church Choir featuring section leaders Kristen Buaben, Diane Drost, Stephen M., and John Yanis. We also thank our music director and organist, Chris Hosfeld. Thank you to our lectors, Chris Hosfeld and Connie Kahn, and our lay reader, Chris Walton. You can find out more about Grace Episcopal Church, including other podcasts, on our website, gracenewton.org. We hope you join us again next week.